0: Welcome to Hope Renewed, the podcast of PIR Ministries. Thanks for connecting to Hope Renewed, the in depth podcast about pastoral renewal and restoration. I'm Tom Jameson, and along with co-host Sean Nemeczek, we explore the issues and challenges pastors face and help cultivate a renewed hope for healthy ministry lives. It's no secret that pastoral leadership and ministry in the 21st century, not to mention just in 2020, is a call which faces a wide range of challenges. At least I hope it's not a secret. What can be a secret, though, and is often hidden from pastors, is how what goes on under the surface of our own lives as we face those challenges impacts our health and the health of our ministry. It's one of PIR's core convictions that healthy churches are led by healthy pastors and leaders. And Sean, I'm excited that today we're going down under to bring up new insights, resources, and practices for ministry health.
1: Yeah, Tom, today we have a, a special guest. Steve Cuss is lead pastor at Discovery Christian Church in Broomfield, Colorado. He's the author of one of the best books that I've read uh, for leaders, Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs. He also hosts a podcast uh, by the same name, uh, and he just launched a website that we're going to talk a little bit about called CapableLife.me. Uh, I first got connected with, with Steve uh, when I was coaching a, a pastor who was dealing with some severe anxiety, and I felt like I could use a little bit of help in understanding uh, just the nature of anxiety. I came across Steve's book and uh, started to dig into it and read it, and it quickly became my go-to for helping pastors dealing with leadership anxiety. Uh, and so I've taken some, several pastors through this book. Steve's been gracious to, to come on to our podcast and, and talk about this. Uh, Steve Kuss, welcome to Hope Renewed.
2: Thanks, Sean. Yeah, great to be with you. And Tom, you too. Good to, good to join you guys.
1: So Steve, let's start off by uh, just uh, introducing you to our, our listeners. Tell us a little bit about your call to ministry and your ministry career.
2: Yeah, I was, I'm a West Australian uh, by species. So West Coast <laughs> Aussie. Um, I grew up unchurched and became a Christian as a teenager, but I was totally blank slate. Our family just had nothing to do with church or God. I I think before I became a Christian, I may have been in a church building three or four times. Um, And my older sister led me to Christ, and that's a whole amazing story. But she and I are the only believers in my family. And uh, I'd been a believer, I I think it was three years when I really felt a call to ministry. I was actually in university to study to be a vet. My life ambition was to be a rural vet and uh, God got a hold of me. So it, it was pretty terrifying to tell my parents because in the Cuss family, you know, used car salespeople, lawyers, politicians, and preachers are all at the bottom of the barrel. And my sister's a lawyer, so she'd already kind of done the damage. Uh, but they, uh, unbelievably, they were really proud of me. And and to this day, my parents are not believers and they're deeply proud of me. And it's an amazing miracle really of, of God. So uh, there's a long sorted story there, but through a series of circumstances, I moved to the United States for my theological study and uh, went and got a a bachelor's in Bible and preaching from Johnson University in Tennessee. So I went from beach culture, Australia, windsurfing, body surfing, to Appalachian, literally snake handling. Like when I was a hospital chaplain, I served in Tennessee Sunday afternoon, if you're on call Sunday afternoon, you are visiting the snake handlers in the hospital. So just as an Aussie, you know, and this young Aussie, it was everything was like exotic in America.
1: Now, you, you were a chaplain um, and uh, your experience uh, as, a, as a chaplain uh, kind of led to uh, writing, managing leadership anxiety. And tell us a little bit about that story, about what motivated you to write this book and in the background to it.
2: Yeah, the chaplaincy experience was just wild. And um, it, it feels like God's God was leading me to it because by, by default, I, I'm a type A driven entrepreneurial, profound need to be impressive. Uh, before I was in ministry, I, I raised money for college by being in sales and I was a very successful salesman. I worked for Yellow Pages Australia. Uh, back in the days where people used the Yellow Pages, I was like number eight in the country And that's actually how I came to America. I won a sales prize, uh, which was a trip to America. Mm. So I had all those skills, had no idea what a shadow side was. I didn't know that I was also manipulative, um, arrogant, you know, all of that, the shadow side of those gifts. Well, I I stumble into hospital chaplaincy for no other reason than I needed money for a year while my wife, my brand new wife finished college and the local hospital, University of Tennessee Hospital uh, hires chaplains for a year in a program called clinical pastoral education. Mm -hmm. And most people in higher education know that or high church know that I'd never heard of it. I had no idea what it was. Mm -hmm. And I was not, here's the, I still do. I should go back and ask the guys there. I don't know why they hired me because I wasn't qualified. I didn't meet any of their criteria. I was too young. I was 24. I didn't have a master's degree and I had no prior CPE experience. So I'd never seen a dead body. My first day on the job was the first day I ever saw a dead body. And the first day I ever took seriously death, I just didn't think about death much, I was young. In fact, I I was on my honeymoon. Uh, The first day on the job was, I just wrapped up my honeymoon. So um, what I I learned quickly, I think the reason God put me in it is because when you're in the face of death, which I was every day uh, and many times a day. So my first hour on the job, I'm doing a 28 hour shift. My first day was overnight. And within an hour and a half, I'm in a room with 12 screaming people and their mom had died. And I remember the time thinking, when we go see the body, am I going to throw up? Like, am I going to pass out? What's it going to be like? And I I think what God knew that I didn't know is if if God didn't break me down and expose all of the shadow side, that manipulation and being impressive and sales and entrepreneurial stuff, like God stripped all that away from me Because all of that, it's not only useless in the face of grief, it's actually obnoxious. And you guys know that. Once you've had some ministry under your belt, you you know that. But still to this day, I I coach a lot of pastors that don't know how to shut up in the face of pain. Mm. And what they don't realize is their need to speak, pray, give a Bible verse is about their anxiety, not the person's anxiety. So people come to us in pain. And we don't realize how our anxiety actually infects our ability to be fully present to them. Um, and so th- those were the life lessons I learned in chaplaincy. And I've it, it, had, it changed my life that one year, just being around death and pain and trauma every day and learning my fears. Like I didn't realize I was a fearful, anxious person, partly because of my gifting, partly because Aussies, if you know any Aussies, we, we actually all work really hard to look like we're laid back and we (laughs) kind of believe it ourselves. Like it's part of the, the fallacy of Aussies. We all don't realize we're anxious. And so God just stripped all that away. And, and boy, what a gift. I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for it.
1: So this book really comes out of your own journey with anxiety and learning to, to manage your own anxiety first. Um, I think a lot of pastors, experience anxiety. In fact, I was preparing for this interview just last night, and uh, one of the pastors I coach called me, and he had stepped on a COVID landmine. Uh, You know, one of these things where the church decides, makes a decision that there's no right decision. Either way, somebody's going to get upset. And and he had uh, somebody in his face questioning his faith and his salvation because of the decision the church made. In this COVID environment, I think that anxiety is is just ramped up to a, to a huge degree. But just in general, pastors experience a lot of anxiety in their leadership. What makes them so anxious?
2: Oh, I I think a pastor's anxiety is is well earned. I don't think it's because there's something wrong with a pastor. I, I got some life insurance. I don't know ten years ago or something. And my life insurance agent said, "Oh, you're a pastor. You're in the top five most high risk professions that we insure." I was wow. like, "What?" He says, oh, yeah, you know, firefighters, pastors. And it's because we do carry more stress than most professions. And the only people that understand it are other pastors. I've tried to explain. I remember when I first came to this church, I've been a lead pastor 15 years. And a good friend of mine, he's a police officer. He's in acute anxiety situations all the time. He's drawing his gun, you know. He pulled me aside once because he joined our band. He played bass and he also would help mix sound. And we were portable. So we get there at seven in the morning, do a full day, come home at two, you know. And he pulled me aside. He's like, hey, I, I owe you an apology. I used to think you were just weak when you talked about how exhausted you were on Sundays. He's like, I'm not even the one preaching. I'm not the one down front receiving everybody between sermons. All I'm doing is playing bass and I'm exhausted. I was like, yeah, yeah it's... <laughs> so I think pastors carry uh, our own internal pressure. We have, we have have We feel so responsible. We've, I think actually it's one of the problems that pastors face is we are over-responsible for things that actually God is responsible for. Mm. And we, we do, we take on something that we can't control. And that, what you just described is a great example. That poor pastor is doing the best he or she can in a, like you said, a no-win situation. Like You can land either way and have a good reason and getting blasted for it. But that pastor's feeling all the pressure from God, like we should worship or we shouldn't or whatever. And and then the external pressure. Most of us got into ministry because we love to see lives transformed. And that means that we are are codependent with life transformation. It's almost like we have a codependent relationship with transformation. So when it doesn't happen or when there's an imbalance of committee meetings and spreadsheets to transformation, I think we really take it hard. And we could spend a whole episode on why pastors feel anxious. The final one I would say is it's not the only job where it's never done. I think a school teacher would be saying amen to that. But a doctor, as much as a doctor has a really high stress job and, and some doctors are on call when they go home, they're generally off. But in my life, I have somewhere around 200 people who would call me 24 hours a day if they needed something. That's a lot, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I think those are some of the reasons why I, I have a lot. I'm a pastor. I have a lot of empathy. I, I do not believe in beating up pastors for, for feeling anxious. Yeah.
1: That's so helpful. I find that pastors are dealing so with so many uh, emotional responses from people. Uh, and it can be really hard to not get infected with, with their anxiety on top of our own. And then you have the board's anxiety or, or, all the expectations that are placed on us. What's, what's really behind a lot of this anxiety? Uh, are there things in our, our background, uh, our early lives that feed our anxiety?
2: Generally speaking, when we're talking anxiety, the only anxiety I work in is chronic anxiety, which is an actual clinical uh, designation. Mm-hmm. So I do want to be careful because there are a lot of pastors that actually do carry trauma and they have genuine PTSD. And so everything I talk about, I can be helpful to them, but I can't carry the weight of, they, they need an actual trauma therapist. I, I would say state licensed, ideally Christian, mm-hmm. who understands how trauma lands in the body. And then like I talked about my friend, the police officer, I'm actually speaking to a group of police um, in December. And I'm going to be really careful to say, look, you guys are in the field of acute anxiety, which is actual life and death. But pastors and by the way, parents, chronic anxiety is our bread and butter. And chronic anxiety is always generated by false need and false belief. So that's where a pastor begins. Is, is, and it takes some time and sometimes you need good friends to help you. But you just start asking the question, what is it that I believe I need that I actually don't need in order to thrive as a human? So in those early chaplain encounters, that need to be impressive that's just chronic anxiety. That's actually mm. nothing good at all. Even now when I get up to preach, I still have to die to my need to impress that room rather than what God's calling me to do is just to be faithful to the text and faithful to the, the task. So most of us have somewhere between 20, 20 and 50 uh, chronic needs. And you can get really granular. How do you need your kids' friends to behave when they're in your house? Mm. And when they, and the way you know what you need is how irritable you get when you don't get it. <laughs> so, so what you do is you try to figure out what is it I think I need. So for me, I always need to be right. I need to know the answer. I need to appear intelligent. I need you to like me. The, this would be the first layer. It's very g- general and generic. But then you can start boiling down to really specifics. I need it that if you ask me a question and I don't know the answer, I need to exaggerate or make something up. Because if I don't, I feel stupid. Like that's now some deeper work, kind of that work. But once you start naming your needs and then you start figuring out, well, what happens when I don't get it? What happens next? That right there is what anxiety is. So the biggest misnomer of anxiety is people say, well, it's like worry and fear. Eh. I get combative when I'm anxious or I exaggerate um, or I'll make something up. Or sometimes if I'm really anxious, I'll retreat and I'll diminish myself because I'm a conflict avoider. So I won't show up as my full self. I'll actually appe- I'll give someone the impression that I agree with them when I'm violently disagreeing in my head. That's a sign of anxiety. Mm-hmm. So anger fantasies are evidence that you're anxious. There's all these sophisticated, binging the crown on Netflix. Now, sometimes mm-hmm. that's just a good way to spend a day off. And sometimes it's evidence you're anxious and you know only your heart knows. So that's one whole category. And I'll just explain the other category and then I'll stop because we can dive either way. But the second category that I found a lot of pastors have found so helpful is there's, there's sources of anxiety that actually have nothing to do with your wiring. They're just universal. So you described, Sean, the guy that stepped on, or you said he stepped on a COVID landmine. Mm-hmm. any one of us, no matter how much we've done these tools, if we were to step on a landmine, we're going to be anxious. Yeah. And it's not because of false belief. It's not because of false need. It's actually situational. So, you know, as you know, Sean, I, I put two chapters worth of those sources of anxiety. And it's, it's always fun when you write a book, you never know, you know, what's going to be helpful. Boy, people have loved that to the point where now where I'm consulting teams, I've summarized those two chapters on a page you know, most of my consultings over Zoom, I'll put it on the screen. And as people are giving the case, I'm just highlighting what sources of anxiety I'm finding. Mm. And I've never found less than seven. Anytime someone gives me a case where they say, hey, here's what's going on. We don't know what to do. Mm. There's the least number of sources have been seven out of the 29 possible sources. And it just gives them so much relief when I say, no wonder you're anxious. Look at all of these dynamics going on. And then of course, that path has its own, journey of detangling uh, as well
1: I think one of the the most helpful parts of the book for me was uh, thinking through some what what you called uh, childhood vows yeah Uh, just some of the the things that we we kind of promise ourselves because of pain that happened in our childhood Um, when I was reading my grandfather's memoir I came across a story uh, where he comes home with a report card, and uh, his mother takes one look at the report card, and instead of seeing all the good marks, she sees the one failing mark. Yeah, and she just broke down in tears. And my grandfather made a vow that he would never come home with a bad report card again. And that vow infected our family, even to my generation. Uh, our family's become, you know, really academic and. We see our own sense of value in, in academic success and knowledge. And boy, that, that has had profound influence on me for good and for bad. That's right. But wow, I, when I read that and, and then connected it with what you talk about in the book, um, it just opened up a, a whole new awareness for me.
2: It's so good. It's such a great example uh, one of the most famous childhood vows I'm aware of is Stephen Colbert. He speaks very openly about it. He, he had, I don't remember, I think it was his dad and three of his brothers died in a car, but he had a number of tragedy at once. Several of the family, they had a large family. And he worked on being a uh, comedy to make his, it was either his mom or his dad. I, I'm sorry, I should have researched this better before I, but, but. He, he uh, learned how to be funny at a young age to make his uh, parent laugh in the face of grief. And now he's a comedian. Hmm. Um, you know, so many people, they, they read generational curses in the Old Testament and they scoff at it as if we're smarter now because we all invented iPads and we think we're so smart. But we're all, if, if we could all understand the generational curses and binds that we don't even know we're in the grip of. So I call it family propaganda. We, we do childhood vow work in my work, and we do genogram work, which people are probably more familiar with genograms. And it's life-changing for people. It's, it's like one exercise that has a lifetime of impact. So digging into your childhood vow, uh, two people that I know that teach people well and they coach is Jim Harrington and Trisha Taylor from The Leader's Journey. Uh, for if any of your listeners are familiar with them, they do phenomenal childhood vow work, and they also coach. But I would encourage anyone to do a bit of childhood vow work. It's painful, but it's so liberating. And then connected to that is genogram work, which you just did a lovely job of laying out the, the generational impact yeah. of that vow. And uh, that's true too. I, I'm always listening in genogram work. I'm always listening when the presenter is presenting family propaganda. Like, what, How does the world have to be? When the rest of us are like, it doesn't actually have to be that. You don't have to be under that that curse. It's it's really powerful. And, you know, as leaders, we think we're above it because we preach the gospel. We don't realize how all of this is infecting our ability to really proclaim and receive uh, the good news. You
1: mentioned genogram work. Your book gets into that a, a little bit and how you can can do that work. And I'll just say from my own experience, it's been, been profoundly helpful. Um, so thank you for that. And, you know, I, I got that from, uh, um, Pete Scazzaro too, yeah. his, his book. Uh, and yeah, it's just, uh, it's been really, really good. Uh, if you were to, uh, to help me with anxiety or help Tom with anxiety, uh, and, you know, we were just coming in and said, man, I'm just really anxious. And I don't know why, uh, what would be like the first few steps that you would take?
2: Uh, I, the first step I would take is to set my stopwatch for six months to a year and mm-hmm. commit to radical self-kindness. Because um, as, as, I'm often asked this question, and it's a great question, but, but it also has behind it for some listeners, a short, quick solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know, I know you, Sean, I know you're not pr- promoting that. But for those of you who are listening, six months to a year, radical kindness, and your grade is gonna be one out of 10. If you can do what I'm gonna teach one out of 10 times, you get an A in my class. So just to set that, then once I've done that, the next step is um, find someone who loves me and ask them, how do they know I'm anxious before I know I'm anxious? And uh, it can be a spouse, friend, a child. Uh, once your kids are about eight, and if, you're, if they feel safe to tell you, they can tell you when you're anxious when you don't know. And what you're trying to do in that exercise is you're trying to become aware sooner in the anxiety process, because what anxiety does is it grabs us and then it drags us down a dark path or a dark alley. And oftentimes it's not to where the end of the alley and anxiety is about to put us in the dumpster that we suddenly realize we're anxious, too late. So if you ask loved ones, they can actually show you your triggers that they see. Most leaders I work with that generally the last to know they're not okay. We'd, I think mm. we, it comes from a good place where others focused. We we want to get, we want to go, take a hill. It's all good, but if you can start to learn the early signs, that would be step whatever we're at too. and then step three is is what Kurt Thompson calls name it to tame it. Mm-hmm. If you can name the source, you have so much power over it, and that's that's why I called the book Managing Leadership Anxiety when when Harper Collins the editor there, Joey, great guy. He's like, hey, we need to name it something that really sells, that really promises. And I'm like, I'm going to name it something that is 100% true. You will be anxious the rest of your life and I cannot eliminate it for you. What I can do is I can simply flip the power dynamic where you're no longer managed by it, now you're managing it. And he was kind enough to say, all right, that'll work. It's not going to be quite, because they were used to publishing lies, if I may be frank seven steps to a perfect whatever. And I'm like, no, no, we're just going to go from being managed by it to managing it. So if you can name the source, you can begin to manage it. And then it really is a heartfelt conversation between you and God. And to me, that's where the gospel has so much to say to a pastor. What is it I believe that's not really true? What's the gospel in this situation? Jesus died to free me from having to be the smartest guy. I can be exactly human-sized as a leader. I can make mistakes. Now, once you start to do that, then the implications are huge. So, you know, I've been doing this work a long time. When I came into this church, I was one of the youngest people in the church. I'd never been a lead pastor before. I'm learning how to lead and preach in front of people who are more mature in Christ than I am. Why fake it? Why not just tell them? So my first few months, and I told the elders when they hired me, I need three to five years to learn how to do this. I'm going to be open about my mistakes. So my whole congregation knew I was a rookie. And it just alleviated all that idolatry in me about being impressive, about the temptation to exaggerate or to lie. It's hard to fall into that temptation when you're openly saying to your church, I've never preached every week before, so it's going to take me a while to get good at it. So you're going to have to sit through some duds. Now, what what does a congregation do with that? They certainly don't put you on a pedestal after that. So there are se- several sophisticated ways to hack the system. And that last one would be an example of what we call brave practice, is you, you diabolically do the opposite that you want to do. If you want to exaggerate, you tell the radical truth. Mm. If, if you're afraid of a critic, you go meet with him for lunch and, and, you, and you're observing yourself to, to overcome this need to hide and blame.
1: So I think you in the book, if I remember correctly, you talk about your own need to uh, to seek approval. And so you got up and intentionally preached a bad sermon. Is that yeah.
2: correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I preached a boring sermon in 20, I don't remember if it was 2011 or 2012. Yeah, I just made sure that the story was largely incoherent. Uh, and the points, I kind of had fun with it, the points were boring, but I said them like they were profound. And I even had them on the screen, you know, in a sentence. I was, so, I was so beholden to my performance as a preacher. I was sinning, like I was no longer passionate about being faithful to God. I was so self-conscious about. And then I was putting all this pressure on myself that in order for our church to grow, I must be like a super preacher. So I just thought enough of this, man. I'd, I'd go into a Sunday afternoon depression, I'd wake up Monday morning just tanked. Mm. And and so that's really how the book came about is every few years I would just come to the end of myself in a specific area and I'd be like, I don't know the, the right language. I'm an Australian, so we, we get a wider vo- vocabulary than Americans, but I'm like, screw this. Like, who wants to live this way? Like, I know so many pastors that live this way where we believe we have to sacrifice our well-being for the gospel. We don't. Like, I, I should be... If I'm going to preach, I should be the most alive in the room. Not like a competition that mm-hmm. there shouldn't be a big gap between what I feel from God and what I'm telling others about. So every few years, I kind of run into this wall and I do this deeper work, sometimes with a therapist, sometimes spiritual director, sometimes with friends. And I, I actually practice these tools that I forged in the book because I'm just not okay with... Um, sacrificing my enjoyment of God and and my experience of God's enjoyment of me for the gospel. God's not mm. asking me to do that. God's asking me to enjoy Jesus so much I can't shut up about him. Yes. And uh, and so, yeah, I, I hacked the system by intentionally preaching a boring sermon. Afterwards, the same amount of people as usual came up and said, that was amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> and I had to swallow my pride and say, I'm so glad that God spoke. And I couldn't tell him. I couldn't say, hey, like I was but it just freed me. So I, on a, I, on a regular basis, preach a pretty B-minus sermon now. And um, it's funny, I still have a profound passion for communication. I teach a public speaking class at our church. So I'm really passionate about good speaking. But when I preach a dud, as every one of us do once in a while, I'm fine. I'm, mm. I'm, I'm resting in Christ. I, I blame God. God, if you wanted a better preacher, you should have brought a better preacher. When I first came to Discovery, I had a family from Mark Roberts Church. I don't know if you guys know Mark Roberts. Mm-hmm. He's, he's one of the uh, high up leaders at Fuller Seminary. He was at a pretty renowned Presbyterian church in California when I came in 2005 to Discovery. And he was one of the great pastor scholars of the world. You know, he's, you know like Chuck Swindoll and Tim Keller. Mark Roberts, is, he's written like 20 books, commentaries, and he, I love his preaching. And then I had a family come from Rob Bell's church. And regardless of what you think of Rob Bell and his theology, he's a maestro communicator. And so I felt all this pressure, like I'll never live up to Mark Roberts and Rob Bell. And God's like, of course you weren't. Like if I wanted them at your, this church, I would have had you hit by a bus. I'd bring in those people. But but all God needs is an exactly human-sized Steve, and that's enough. Mm. And And stop trying to be more and just be that, and God will use it. And that's the great miracle of my life is how God has used me exactly human size to really make an impact in this church. That's so good.
1: Tom, have you ever intentionally preached a a boring sermon? Have I I, usually unintentionally? I was going to say, (laughs) I
0: I, I remember um, early on in, in uh, the church I was serving someone coming to me and saying, you know, after a sermon, you'll get better. (laughs) <laughs> and and i pray you know at that time maybe uh i would have had more grace to to receive that for what it was a gift to to recognize yeah but one of the things i'm hearing that's resonating with me what you're saying steve is this sense and willingness for me to be ruthless with myself to get past my need to to be approved or my need to be accepted and and to Get down to the the very core of myself, trusting that God is there with me to yeah. do that that good and faithful work, and to allow Him to to do that. But boy, that that sense of needing to be ruthless with myself is a frightening thing.
2: Yeah, I I think it's a great observation. And just hearing you guys banter about, you know, what is true, which is we've all preached a lot of duds. I yeah. think I'm north of a thousand sermons now. What percentage of them were duds? Probably a much higher percentage than I want to admit. Here's the fallacy: is I really believe that every sermon can change the world. What's that? And any any sermon could maybe change the world. Uh, I, I prefer to preach like Doctor Doofenschnitz from um, Phineas and Ferb, the TV show. Yep. If I could just change the tri-state area, that's probably a pretty good faithful. <laughs> but, but. What's actually true is your congregation has already sat through your duds and they knew it was a dud. So when you preach a boring sermon on purpose, you believe you're going to disrupt the whole experience. But what's actually true is for them, it's just another dud. And that's the mad, that's why it breaks anxiety's grip on me is because I'm now living in truth. Anxiety has a gospel and it's gospel is always lies. I, I believe as I've done I've done a lot of research on the spiritual nature of chronic anxiety. And I believe in Western culture, um, it's chronic anxiety and our own inner critic is where spiritual warfare is most keen. You know, we don't tend to go around and find demons everywhere. We just have a battle for our mind and we are losing it as pastors. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I love about these hacks is what all it does is it, it shows you what's really true because you've actually been living under a lie and under a curse. Every sermon has to be the best ever in order for me and this church to be okay. But your congregation has already sat through probably 50 duds by the time you did, just preach 50, number 51 and you'll be fine. And then when you, Tom, when you say ruthless, I, I would just reframe that word as radically kind, is when somebody says to me, you'll get better. The way to be radically kind to myself is to say, that's true. By the grace of God, I probably will get better. Thank you. Rather than, oh, I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I have to get better. Because like, I've been preaching full-time now for 15 years, and I've been preaching for 25. If someone were to come up to me today and say, you'll get better, I'll be like, amen to that. Let's let's look forward to that day. Because I love preaching. I would love to get better at preaching. And I can even say to them, depending on who they are, some of them, I'd, I'd tell them where to take it, where to shove it, depending on my relationship with them and their relationship with criticism but the majority of them i'd be saying how do you think i could get better Mm. and they'd say you know you you repeat a lot of stories oh thanks i do yeah okay thanks um so i wouldn't encourage people to to take all criticism equally i actually have a tool where we sift criticism to make sure that the right criticism is coming through but uh the gift of chaplaincy for me was they forced us to look at our shadow side. I didn't even know I had one. And and the the, beautiful, the the most powerful experience for me as a chaplain was when I discovered God is in it. The very thing I've been trying to hide from people, it's, it's Psalm 139. In the deepest places, God is there. And what the chaplain supervisor said to us is they, they basically said, look, you're all trying to outgrow Paul when Paul says, my power is made perfect in weakness. You, you're all wanting that to be like past tense, but what if it's always true? Mm. So your weakness is you need to be impressive. God's in it. Now go be unimpressive to that grieving family because I tell you what, the last thing they're looking for is to you, for you to impress them. They just need a faithful guide in the very worst moment of their life. Mm. And so I think that was my journey of humility is to really realize at 24 years of age, that humility is not being as wrapped up in myself and truly shrinking myself to become just a spirit-led guide.
1: Uh, in my own journey of dealing with anxiety, I kept bumping up against um, just something that was blocking me, keeping me from moving forward. And I learned it was my own negative self-talk. Yeah. Uh, and I started to realize, you know, I would never say these things to anybody it. but me. Um, and so, so for, for me, that radical kindness became notice the, the negative self-talk and then just say to myself, "Now, what would Jesus say to me in this situation and make that the new, new way of talking to myself? I'm still radically working on that. It's, there's a long, long, long way to go. Yeah. But that, that got me through one of those roadblocks. Are, are there other roadblocks that people face along the way as they're trying to, to do their anxiety work?
2: I actually think what you just named, Sean, is the most powerful tool. It's one of, it's got to be in the top three most powerful tools the leader can do. And I, so I would, I would just nuance it and say, get in a group of people that you feel very safe with so that you can tell them your negative self talk mm-hmm. and then share it with each other and then ask them to bless you. And, usually I end up in tears in that experience but my friends or my spouse or whoever I've asked is so eager to bless me with what they see in me versus what I see and uh, I, I love what you said about what does Jesus say versus what I say once you've spoken it you you it has less power over you you've like you've put it on a leash mm. and that's the issue with the inner critic is I think We mistakenly think that being humble is thinking down on ourselves, but it's actually one of the most ways that we're arrogant and Mm self-righteous because Jesus has an opinion about us and we let our opinion be higher than Jesus. That's pretty arrogant if you're going to place your view above the king of the universe. But in my experience, we always need the help of others. We need to say it. And then what I encourage people to do is your friends are writing down the adjectives that they're hearing as you're saying it. So Sean, if you don't mind, just tell me what is the message your inner critic, and I'll give you the feedback of your adjectives.
1: Well, you know, connected to my, uh, my family script, uh, whenever I do something that, that is even mildly embarrassing, I'll find myself saying, man, Sean, you're just so stupid. Why would you do something like that? Uh, and, and I'll, I'll find myself, you know, dreaming of ways that that I could have come across as more intelligent or more important or, or things like that. And just beating myself up with that type of script.
2: Yeah. Um, so what I heard was then, so if I was in your friend group, I'd say, okay, I heard that you're harsh, your inner critic is unrelenting. It's abusive. You use language beating myself up. So one of the things I do in my coaching is I take language very seriously. We use it so flippantly. So I would be saying, Sean, uh, beating yourself up—that's actually something that I'd call the police for. If I were to see you beating up somebody, I would. So and it helps us realize, wow, this is a serious. Like this is serious. Um, and then and then what exactly? What you said? What does the gospel say? It -hmm. says that God is kind. That that, Sean, actually, you are a gift to the people you're leading. God has put you there as a gift to them, not because you're not enough. And, and so then you're the journey you're on of, okay, now by faith, I have to believe what I don't believe, and I have to die to what I've believed all my life. I, I, I just didn't want to move past because what you laid out is so powerful. I, I hope the people in, in your ministry are taking the hours that it takes to really do that And then the people that know you like, obviously, Sean, we don't know each other. Well, we've only met over Zoom. But I've watched you when I was on that Zoom with you and some of your folks, your kindness oozes out of you. Like I, I would imagine that having never met you in person, I would imagine most of the people who coach would say, boy, Sean just is such a breath of fresh air because of how kind he is and how better I feel after I'm with him. Now, I don't, you would say, right? We don't really know each other. Right. Have have you heard that before from others? Yes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So I've done this uh, exercise with people for 10 years now. And the first impression, we, we teach this over eight to 12 months. The first impression people have is the same as the last impression. The last thing we do is a blessing. Here's mm-hmm. how God has uniquely wired you. Here's how you're a gift to the kingdom. And it always is mind-blowing to me that in the first 15 minutes of meeting someone, if you train people how to see it, they know. So, so then, okay, which one's true? Am I kind or am I unrelenting? It can't both be true. Uh, and so what would life look like? So one of the prayers we have people pray is, what if I was at least as blank to myself as God is? What if I was so blank to myself that when I die, God says to me, you know, you overdid the kindness. You should have actually been. <laughs> and the reason that's funny is we would never do that. We're yeah. so harsh on ourselves. So that's helped me is just like, what if I was as because I, I beat myself up on um leadership mistakes where I should have known better. Mm. What if God, what if I was as patient with myself as God is? And now I have to believe the gospel.
0: I'm on my own little journey here. This is this is fascinating. I think the potential for such deep healing in in the yeah. things that, that you're talking about. Um yeah. and and allowing ourselves to be opened to that. I, I'm likening it to the whole onion thing, you know, peeling back layers yes. and peeling back layers yeah. and, and the courage that that requires.
2: Yes. Lots of courage.
0: Um, and, and uh, I really do appreciate your invitation to, and challenge to draw others into that journey, that this isn't yeah. something that we could or should do simply by ourselves.
2: It won't work. If you keep it internal, it will not work. You can't read my book and change. I think Mm -hmm. I even make that guarantee in the book. Mm -hmm. Like I guarantee if you read my book and don't do anything, you won't change. And, and it is because like, for me, the gospel has come number one in my life, the tangible love of God through my wife. She is the, I'm so, and I know that's Mm -hmm. rare. I don't, I'm not bragging. I know a lot of people don't have that, but for me, the love of my wife is the most tangible way I have been loved by God. Or I shouldn't say I haven't been. That's not the most, it's the most tangible way I've felt the love of God. And then the second is the love of my friends in ministry. I, I'm not the guru, I'm not the guy that graduated from my book. I'm calling my friends on a regular basis saying, I need help. I'm losing my way. Mm-hmm. I'm stuck. I'm anxious. Yeah. And they're calling me too. So, this this vision I cast for people it's not something you ever graduate from it's a it's a way of life, and uh, it's funny I have facilitators in our church that I've now trained and actually certified in these tools, and so this year is the first year where I'm just popping in but they're really carrying it and I'm so proud they're doing such a great job, but one of them Jimmy, I was I was co facilitating with him a few years ago, before he was like running it on his own. And we had a group of students and, uh, and, and they're like, this is so hard, like this, these questions, this childhood vow stuff is so hard. And I, I was just sitting there saying, yes, it is, yes. And then Jimmy, I'm so glad he spoke. He said, listen, the reason you think it's hard is because you, are not re- you don't realize how hard it was before. You were so used to the old way that you weren't realizing the cost it was doing the price you're paying this is this is no harder than that it's actually easier it's just new hard that's why mm. it's hard but you're right it's a journey of courage you have to learn how to sit in your pain longer than you want to however the the gospel like the tangible love peace and freedom that's what i run into in most faith leaders is the gap between what we tell others and what we feel for ourselves I'm like fanatical about, let's shrink that gap, leaders, hmm. and, and, and that'll help. So, so yeah. yeah. Well, Steve, tell us a little bit about
0: this, this new uh, initiative you're doing, the CAPABLE, and how that does that very thing you're talking about.
2: Yeah, yeah, thanks. So, CAPABLE Life, the first three letters are capable of CAPABLE, C A P, stands for Calm, Aware, Present. So, it's an online community to help you practice calm, aware presence in the workplace and the home place. It's, it's going to begin probably the first year and a half, maybe two years. It's going to begin with a managing leadership anxiety tool. So people who know my MLA tools, that's what it's going to be. I have just renamed it because I want to eventually have all kinds of tools that help us in our emotional and spiritual integration. And also because managing leadership anxiety is a leadership book because a leadership organization was incredibly kind to publish it. Leadership network, great group they published it with HarperCollins, and they took a chance on a rookie author. No one, I mean, I was known as a local lead pastor, but no one knew me for this work before the book came out. And so I I don't want it to be limited to just leaders. It's for parents. It's for anyone in the workplace. Yeah. So right now we have a, a beta group that signed up. We launched January 3rd, but yeah, I've already got a beta group from six different countries which has been amazing um, that jumping in. So it's going to be an international thing. But basically, uh, since my book came out, I get so many requests to come into organizations and give them an hour or a half day. And we always have a blast. As much as what we've talked about is so earnest, there's lots of laughter because laughter and anxiety don't get along. Mm. And so the two things that can displace anxiety is love and laughter. So when I come into an organization we're doing, we are having uproarious laughter. I'm giving away pillows with Nicolas Cage, like he's naked from the waist up. So like just weird stuff, we have a great time. But here's what I know is people love the time that they are with me because I'm, I'm doing what we've done now. We're diving into tools, we're helping people feel free. But then I go and they go back to their schedules and very little changes. So, Capable Life is designed to be a long-term engagement. It's—I think the beta price is twenty-two a month. It's, that's ending soon, so depending on when the episode comes out, but it's going to be twenty-eight a month for nonprofit leaders, um, first responders, and just individuals. If you're paying out of your own pocket, twenty-eight bucks a month or two hundred and eighty a year, and you'll get a whole slew of ten-minute videos. So, we've probably covered seventy minutes worth of videos in our podcast. We kind of move quick. But each of these tools we talked about, they'll be their own 10-minute video and they'll always have something to do, something to practice. There'll be an online confidential community. And I'm, I'm actually probably going to start a channel just for pastors, um, particularly for pastors who have a staff. You might want to do this together. Like I've really designed it to where maybe five of you sign up. So let's talk to pastors who have subordinates in Capable Live with you we're gonna have a private access only channel just for the pastor. So you can talk freely. But then for everyone, it's gonna be confidential. You have to log in. But then the other option we're encouraging people is find some pastor friends and sign up together so that maybe you can gather together outside of Capable Life. But if you can't do that, we provide that for you inside. We do monthly Zooms. My certified facilitators uh, will host the Zooms. You can present case studies, questions, uh, there's a couple of other things. Oh, there's like a weekly self-assessment. So some of the questions we ask, like one of the questions of what if I was as blank to myself as God is, that's going to show up in your inbox as a way to practice it. Uh, and then we're going to do masterclasses every other month to where, if you want to go deeper into genograms, childhood vows, and I, I mentioned Jim and Trisha. I'll be bringing in some friends of mine, Chuck DeGroat, Sean Palmer, and, and they'll be some of our experts in these masterclasses. So it's really designed to be the place that people can thrive, go from being spun up to calm, aware, present. Because that's what I learned as a chaplain. I, I'm not able to help people in pain unless I'm grounded myself. And if I'm not aware of what's going on in me, I can't help others. But then what I also learned about chaplaincy that we really haven't covered is how do I learn what's going on in others? How do I notice anxiety in a group? And then how do I helpfully bring them to a calm presence? So that's going to be capable life. And then I think year two and year three, we'll bring in some brain science experts. We'll bring in some uh, part, what's called parts of self. My wife's a trauma therapist. Uh, she'll be showing up and doing some stuff. So it's really meant to be holistic, but it's always going to be these little nugget, 10 minutes, long-term Interactive with others, interactive with my facilitators. So you can go to capablelife.me if you want to know more, and uh, we'll be launching 1st of January.
1: That's great. There's other places you can uh, connect with Steve Cuss. You can go to his website, stevecusswords.com. You can connect with Steve on Twitter. He's fairly active there. Again, at Steve Cusswords. And you can listen to the Managing Leadership Anxiety Podcast. And and I just want to end with a question about that podcast. It's one of my favorites. And uh, you end every one of those podcasts with a gauntlet of anxiety questions. Right. Now, I, originally, I was going to ask you to put Tom through that, that gauntlet because, you know, that we would be able to see anxiety and action. Yeah, that here,
0: you, you would see it raw and real.
1: I, I, that's one of my favorite features of, of your, your podcast. Uh, as you've done that, what are some of your favorite questions and answers that you've heard in, in that time?
2: Oh, man. I think my favorite response is just getting a great guest off script. I just enjoy, I I never want a guest to feel uncomfortable. I don't want them to feel probed, but usually once the recording's off, the guest is like, man, I've, that was really fun. Like that's been the overwhelming response. And that's really gratified me. Probably my all-time favorite question is when in your life do you feel most fully loved? Mm -hmm. I think it just gets to the heart of it. And shock of all shocks, I learned that question from Dana Carvey on Jerry Seinfeld's Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. I, I, I watched Dana ask that question of Seinfeld. I was like, wow, what a question. And I really like asking people to tell us about a leadership mistake they've made recently and what they did to recover from it. Because I think so many people believe that these gurus graduate from being human. So when Max Licato is on there and Henry Cloud, some of these like amazing human beings, their response is always the same. They're like, oh, well, I'd have to really think about all of the mistakes and which one am I going to share in the last week? Like they're very human. So I almost all my guests are willing to go there. And I just, I have so much respect that they're willing, uh, willing to be real. Uh, So those are probably two of my favorites.
1: It's a great podcast. I highly recommend it. Steve, thank you so much for being a guest here on hope renewed. And uh, we really, really appreciate your graciousness and, your willingness to kind of go deep into this this area of leadership anxiety. Yes, thanks so Steve. much.
2: Thanks. Oh thank yeah, it's so a much. pleasure to be with you guys. Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: And as always, we invite our listeners to like, comment, and share this podcast. It's a great way to help us and to bring hope to others. Thanks for joining us today. It's our prayer that yours is an unshakable hope rooted deeply in Jesus's love for you. PIR Ministries partners with God and the Church in the work of pastoral renewal and restoration to cultivate new hope for healthy ministry lives. You can learn more about us at our webpage, pirministries.org, or email us at info at pirministries.org. Thanks for joining us for Hope Renewed. And remember, the hope Christ offers will never put us to shame.